0: Hey everyone. Welcome back to Reality 2.0. I'm Catherine Druckmann. Doc Searles, and I are talking to David Karachenko. David and I have actually worked together in the past, but that's not what we're talking about. We are talking about uh, David's experiences in Ukraine. David is a freelance journalist and an expert on foreign policy and Ukraine and the political landscape over there. And so many things, uh, uh, European football, I believe (laughs) I would put Mm -hmm. in that category, frankly, uh, so many, so many things. And we have, uh, yeah, we have a lot of things to talk about because as always, there is, um, something happening in the news that has to, that forces us to kind of shift our narrative a little bit when we have these conversations. So I wanted to just quickly introduce David and let him introduce himself rather. And, uh, you know David please tell us your story about your recent travel to Ukraine how you got started in uh in your uh the, the journalism that you're doing these days and and then i'd really like your take on what's been going on the past weekend week few days in in Russia but but i'll let you i'll let you just just tell us who you are please cuz i know you're very interesting and have a lot to say but you know, our listeners do not yet
1: Fantastic. Well, thank you both for for having me on the podcast. Um I think uh in the in the perspective of Ukraine Ukraine's importance. I, I was listening to a podcast with like a few venture capitalists. Um they were just talking about like look, Ukraine, the war is irrelevant now except for the people who are directly involved. Nobody's talking about it. And then this weekend the coup happens in Russia nearly unfolded. Um and so it's it's while it may not be directly on the uh like on top of people's minds, it's still showing how important Ukraine is to the world and what happens in Ukraine is going to determine uh so much of like future world events. Um and my story in terms of like my work as a journalist and researcher, well it really got started back in, in 2017 when I visited some of my fa- family back on the front lines in, in Donbass, which, which is the region uh, of Luhansk Oblast, Donetsk Oblast, where the Russia first invaded in, in 2014 after they annexed Crimea. So a lot of my family's from from that region, and I went back to go visit them. And we, we lost a few relatives at the start of the war when like, the Russian militants came to occupy uh, eastern Ukraine. And after just, like, visiting family, seeing the, the like, more of a low-intensity war there and just thinking about all the reporting that was going on in Ukraine, and um, it really frustrated me that there was a lack of an actual Ukrainian perspective on, on world affairs or even on Ukraine. Um, a lot of the press bureaus in Eastern Europe were stationed in Moscow, And historically, I think a lot of Western journalism in Ukraine was really sloppy, whether it was like directly citing Russian propaganda or just relying on Russian sources. So Ukraine's perspective was heavily neglected. And so after 2017, I told myself, okay, no matter what it takes, I'm going to figure out how to become a writer, how how to become a journalist Um, and just work my way up. And it it took a few years to figure out, like, how do I actually write? How How do I research? How do I do all these things? But... After a certain point, you just you learn from your mistakes you continue you continue trying to put put your material, put your research there and uh really, after the full scale uh invasion in, in twenty the whole world took an interest um and was really able to step up a lot of my like research um and writing
0: and When was the last time you visited ukraine
1: yeah so i I went back twice last year, so at the at the start of the war. Well frankly, even before the full scale invasion, um I I genuinely believe the intelligence or that was being released by like the Biden administration, like the, the massive buildup on on Ukraine's borders of like nearly two hundred thousand troops, um and the the materials that Putin was releasing, just analyzing his speeches when in twenty twenty one he wrote an essay on like the historical unity between the R- Russian Ukrainian people is dismissing Ukraine as not a real country, as like the people being actual Russians, so like just if you were watching the language that Putin was using, like his genocidal aims, you knew that like Putin has been meaning to wage this war for a long time um and I knew that this this war was coming so in the the days leading up to February, I was calling family in Ukraine, I was like, hey. How's everything going out there? They're like, "Hey, you're overreacting. There's not going to be a war. There's no way that they're going to try to take Kiev." So every morning, I was waking up, checking my phone to see if the if the war started. And then finally, one evening, it's like breaking news: Putin like announces his special military operation. I'm watching a speech, and then I call family, and they're like, "We hear, you know, airstrikes, like the bombings going on. Everyone's running to the shelters and hiding." And you're just like, "Wow, it's it's actually here." Um and so for the first um two weeks I was just um just paralyzed. You're watching the news, seeing like everything that's going on, um, seeing if like what, what the battle's looking like for Kyiv and just all the all the horror stories that are going on and like listening to my family telling me what's going on and the the nonstop bombings. Um then eventually I just decided that like I can't sit back and I need to go do something and reached out to some different volunteer channels, and I had a friend. Well, uh, at that time, a, a stranger reached out. He's like, hey, I know somebody in Romania. Like, a, I have a contact in Romania that's saying they need help, they need a translator. So I was like, okay, well, let's put them, in, uh, put them in touch with me. So then I got the number, called them, and they were telling me that there's just hundreds of refugees coming in. There's no Ukrainian language translator at that specific shelter, and they really need help. So after like a five minute conversation, I was like, say no more, I'm going. So I bought my ticket, flew 33 hours. And that that person um, that came out with uh, that, like provided me that contact there, they have no connection to Ukraine. They're a Canadian citizen that, that lives in Seattle. And they were like, do you mind if I come with you? I was like, sure, like, please do so. So they they bought a ticket, came along. We flew total travel times, 33 hours, arrived to Romania I get to the shelter, it's it's 9am, ha- haven't eaten yet, just sit down to eat breakfast, and then like all the refugees heard that there's now a tra- Ukrainian language translator at the shelter. So just like a group of people all come running down, they come uh, to talk to, they're, they're trying to translate, they're like, hey, what do I do to get documents in this country? How do I get over to the next country? Like, what, what do I do to start a new life? And um, you're just like, just trying to settle down, and then you immediately get to work and um, and so for throughout the uh, daytime, I was translating at the shelter. And then in the evenings I'd go translate at the border because most of the volunteers would leave, but there'd still be people coming in in the evenings. And it was very cold. And the, the tragedy at the, at the start of the war is like talking to the Romanian policemen, the firefighters, the other volunteers at the border was that <clears throat> a lot of people aspired to do good, um, and came with like, supplies trying to help refugees, but there was a lot of bad so there was a lot of human traffickers that came to the border. Um they were trying to steal like young women that were crossing the border. Um one of the firefighters, remaining firefighters, even told me that uh like people came in vans and offered to take families in with them and they got them into the vans and then drove out to the middle of like a field, stole everything that they had and then left them in like the middle of nowhere and and so stories like that and the firefighters saw like people trying to kidnap women at the border. And and so you saw definitely a lot of bad in humanity, but a lot of good. Uh, but eventually the Romanian police after a few days, like they put strict controls over who crosses, who can get in close to the border. So it was like, uh, uh, it was, there was a good amount of control. It was vetted. Um, And then I needed to go and get certified with the police at the, at the border that I was a translator. Um, and you just saw the, the initial brutality of the war, like the people coming in, crossing the border from cities like Mariupol, where they were under, the city was under siege and there was no water, no, no electricity. And people didn't even know what was going on in the outside world. And they, they're, they're huddled in basements. There's no food, they're running out of all their supplies and the Ukrainian soldiers there have very little rations and they're, the soldiers are sharing the rations with the people. Um, and eventually at some point, I remember one family telling me that they were just like the city's like, there's going to be nothing left to the city and it's just time to run. And so the people all at once just got up out of that basement and started running. And some of them were gunned down by Russian soldiers. Some of them made it out alive um and so like that family in particular when I when I heard their story I immediately like opened up my wallet took some money out gave it to them I was like wherever you're going next could we put them on a bus to continue to the train station I was like I hope that you're well taken care of and 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 that everything works out but you're just hearing so many of these stories and I mean another one that immediately comes to my mind was uh, a father with two children, a father, a wife and, and two children. And the son, the older son was about 12 years old and he had a mental uh, disability. And um, I was stopping the cars and, and and the people that were crossing the border, starting to talk to them, translate like, Hey, what services can we provide? What can we do to help you? And uh, this person in particular, I stopped to talk with them and he's just an absolute shock and he couldn't talk for, a a good, moment. And you're, you're trying to talk to him. You're like, hello, what's going on? Like, how can we help you? And he just has this like look in his face and eventually he gets out of his car and I see his, his child, um, is just like screaming and yelling. And I'm just asking like, what's going on? Um, you know, what can we do to help? And I was like, there's a shelter. Why don't we get you over to a shelter? And he's like, finally, he's able to speak again. And he asked me, he's like, are they bombing Romania? is everything working here? The gas stations, is, is everything okay here? I was like, yes, it's okay. There's peace. There's there's no issue here. And he's just like, listen, we cannot go to uh, an open shelter. We need to be in a, a private space because like my child who's mentally disabled, There's been he's heard so many bombings and he's just so scared of seeing another human being and he needs to be somewhere where it's like secluded and, and he's not around other human beings. So we're able to talk to some of the organizations we found, a Romanian family that was able to house them. I like give them private accommodations, um, and then the uh for all the families that were like sleep sleeping in tents who didn 't know what to do next, I was going tent to tent uh translating um, like offering different services and and frankly, it just became a matter of providing comfort and love to these people um these people are just terrorized. They're not homeless, like sleeping in this tent and they don't know what to do next. And you're just trying to provide some comfort and, and humanity uh, to these people. And like the looks on their faces when a Ukrainian uh, speaking person comes in, they just provided them so much comfort and you're able to like help calm them down. And like, Hey, why don't we get you over out of this tent with all your children, put you uh, into a shelter and, and help make sure that like you're taken care of Um and so, yeah, many of those stories around like volunteering in Romania. But then later, I I ended up going to the Mexican border to Tijuana to go volunteer as well. Um, and uh, there was a lot of Ukrainian refugees cr- going into the U.S. crossing via Mexico. So there was like a, a program at that time that allowed for Ukrainians to, to cross and like to the U S and get like asylum or refugee status. Um, and so ended up uh, working out of a camp there and was also sleeping in a tent with the Ukrainian refugees. And it was just wild because one of the mornings uh, there was, uh, I don't know if it was like the cartel or some organization, but they dropped off a, a, like a dead Mexican woman who tied up with her hands and, and her feet tied in front of a refugee camp people who fled the war um and so like the police came, cleaned it up within a few hours, but it was just uh it was just a, a crazy situation in, in Tijuana and I was uh, helping run like some of the airport operations where I was able to use my Spanish language abilities to to like work with the police and coordinating all the airport operations of everyone who lands, putting them in line, helping them fill out documentation uh calling like busses to to drive upload all the refugees take into the camp get them registered help uh help them cross over in into the US um and then a few months later after after that I I went to Ukraine back to Ukraine for almost a month um what well, I didn't mention in Romania I actually crossed the border went into Ukraine to go see my family um and this, this is the first time. And I went and saw my family and we were in the city. Then the air—that that is my first time hearing the air raid alarms they started. So we quickly, I drove away from the city, went to a, like a village where, where it was safe. But I just remember that first time where I crossed the border from Roma- uh, from Ukraine back into Romania. Like you feel the pressure lift off of you where you're like, wow, there's, I'm now uh in like a safe space. And I'm not going to, there's no chance of me being bombed now, like ver essentially and I, you just feel that tension like rise off your, your shoulders once you cross back into the safety of Romania um man so the I went, went went back to Ukraine in, in August uh, for almost a month for about a month and I didn't exactly know what I was doing but I took a lot of money with me like a lot of my savings to to spend and and, and to know that I was going to use it for a certain cause and so I, I went to Kiev uh, to go see some of my family. And uh, the first few days I was um, uh, in Irpin in, in Bucha, so helping rebuild some of the, like, uh, districts' uh, civ- uh, civilian apartment blocks that were destroyed uh, in the fighting. So we're cleaning out a lot of the, like, hazardous material. Like, there was uranium from tank shells that exploded. And so I, I saw a lot of the youth, um, like, cleaning up a lot of these like hazardous spaces. And there was a British volunteer there. He's telling me, he's like, can you please tell these like young people they need to wear uh, like masks? And there's so much of this hazardous material and everyone's walking around without masks without like all the protective equipment and cleaning it up. So I quickly like told all the young people, like quickly grab masks, put everything on. Let's continue uh, working here. And so I spent a few days doing that. And I got in touch with like another volunteer because I was exploring to go to another city to help do some cleanup work and there we just started talking and they're like yeah i actually help uh, run an uh an organization out of uh, the new in southern ukraine we we go and we evacuate civilians and from the front lines and bring aid." they're like what do you think and i was like why don't we go and like see what we can do so then we bought train tickets and departed for the new near like the southern front and so I called like the the main organizer of the of uh, the of the nonprofit there, and they were like, "Wow, it'd be such a moral boost for not just for the refugees on the front, but for the people here to have someone from the states to come and like be a volunteer alongside us." I was like, "Say no more," and so I arrived and um, started driving every day into cities like Bakhmut, Slavyansk, Ramatorsk on the front lines, bringing humanitarian aid. Um, and taking refugees out. Sometimes I drive drive soldiers from like the hospitals that were cleared back to the front lines, or, in, or driving supplies to soldiers on the front lines, um, like tires, different medical equipment. Um, and yeah, did that for for the the rest of my time out in Ukraine. And um, yeah, just so much to say around those those that experience.
2: I, I want to ask a bit about. Um both languages and geography because you've been to so many places of sort of losing track of where you're doing the translating. It seems like you, I mean, you speak obviously many languages. Um, the, the first question is, um, are, are Ukrainian and Russian mutually intelligible or is translation always required for people so who don't speak the other language?
1: So Ukrainian linguistically is actually closer to Polish than it is to Russian. Um, And, uh, I mean, Ukrainian and Russian are still, like, very similar. There's a lot of overlap. Um, But, like, if you speak very basic terms, I think much like Portuguese and Spanish, you can understand. But once you kind of start talking at a higher level or more intellectual materials or add a little bit of complexity, then, like, somebody who only knows, like, pure Ukrainian and pure Russian will have a hard time understanding and Mm -hmm. following each other. And so often I will speak Ukrainian and somebody only speaks Russian. I'm like, hey, you need to stop. I actually don't understand whatever you're saying. And I'm like, okay, I need to revert and like tweak my brain so that I only can like speak Russian now. So they, they do require, uh, but a lot of Ukrainians, for example, speak mixed of both Ukrainian and Russian called surzik. Um And so Ukrainians often mix both of the languages all together. And so they speak both.
2: Hmm. So, uh, and and Romanian is a is a Latin language. So that's yet another. One, right, closer
0: to Italian, kind
2: of. Closer to yeah, and in Belarus, I assume they speak Russian, but is that wrong? I don't even know.
1: Yeah. So I mean, I mean, Belarus has its own distinct language, but it's it's spoken by a very like a small, a very small percentage of the of the country. Um, and so like my father likes to say Belarusian is like a drunk, Ukra- uh, a drunk Ukrainian trying to talk Russian. It, it is like, <laughs> it sounds like a mixture of Ukrainian Russian languages. So Belarusian is very, very similar to, to Ukrainian as well. Um, it's mm. it, it just more rare to hear it. I think now with, with these last few years has been like you, you saw the, the like people saw the protests in Belarus in 2020 and a lot of Belarusians, much like Ukrainians previously, went through this process of, uh, like, they're undergoing a rejuvenation of their national identity. And the, the, uh, the, like, symbol of the protest was the old Belarusian flag of the, the white, red, and white stripe. Mm-hmm. Um, which was like the flag that the Belarus had following independence. But then once Lukashenko took power, he reverted it back to like a Soviet model. He brought back this, like the Soviet flag, the Soviet systems promoted the use of the Russian language um, and really, su- I think, suppressed the, the Belarusian identity. And, you know, I think Putin's, Putin's aims of invading Ukraine and trying to bring it back into Russia's sphere of influence didn't just, awaken like much of the Ukrainian population to to, uh, to their identity and the like historical crimes and aggression of the Russian state and empire. But you see the same process happening in Kazakhstan and different Central Asian countries and Belarus in Ukraine. And so Putin's aims of trying to invade and bring everyone back to like the 1960s or the 1930s of restoring the empire is actually doing the opposite of pushing everyone everyone further away from Russia and everyone like uh, like finding their, their identity once again.
2: So th- let me ask about um, Crimea, because in one of your writings, you talk about the partisans in mm-hmm. Crimea. I assume these are Ukrainian partisans. They're partisans to Ukraine. And so they, they prefer restoring Crimea to the Ukrainian uh, state. Is that correct? I just want to be clear on on what's going on there, and I also want to get your thoughts on how much the Crimean, uh, I guess it's an oblast at this point, uh, is is eager to get back into Ukraine or wishes to stay with Russia.
1: Right. So I mean, yeah. I mean, Crimea has been. Um, I mean, you, you had, yeah, even recently, like. Elon Musk and a lot of these figures butting butting into the argument of Crimea and like let it go, it's 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 done, like we shouldn't even negotiate. And at the at the start of the full scale invasion, you had Anthony Blinken on a lot of yet uh also Adam Smith, the top Democrat who who's chaired the like the Armed Services Committee in Congress, said it's like there's no chance, there's no support for Ukraine to take Crimea back. But that narrative is shifting. And it's also important to to really not buy into the Russian propaganda or the Russian narrative around Crimea. Like Crimea has a very complex history. And frankly, before Stalin depopulated the peninsula of its Crimean Tatars um in the nineteen forties was majority Crimean Tatar and Ukrainian population. And then in the nineteen forties Stalin went and deported majority of the the uh, Crimean Tatars to um like Siberia and, and Central Asia. Um, and also with the in the 1930s in eastern Ukraine and Crimea, with the Holodomor, they starved millions of Ukrainians to death, and they repopulated those areas with with ethnic Russians. Um, but even if we go back to 1991, when Ukraine declared independence, the majority of Crimeans voted to break from the Soviet Union and join an independent Ukrainian state, much like the the the, the eastern Ukrainian uh, oblasts of Donbas and mm-hmm. Luhansk, and in two thousand and ten in the regional elections, there was a pro russia party that was full on wanted to was pushing to like rejo- to join Russia um, and like break away from Ukraine. They actually only got five percent of of the uh, of the vote um, and then in two thousand and eleven there was polling done in Crimea that asked Crimeans like if they viewed ukraine as like their motherland. And over 70% of uh, the Crimeans polled did view it. And so when when Russia invaded Crimea in 2014, one of the first things that they did was take over like the TV, the radio networks. They immediately banned Ukrainian news and immediately started... Um, like controlling the narrative and saying like, they're going to ban the, Ukra- uh, the Russian language. Like Ukrainians are Nazis. They're coming for you. They want to kill you. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to get the, the the ethnic Russians in Crimea riled up and angry. Um, and so they they held that vote at gunpoint uh, uh, to the local population. And like, why would Ukrainians vote in, a, in an illegal referendum that gives you the option of break away from Ukraine or break away from Ukraine and, and join Russia, um, so the the Ukrainian population wasn't even in, in engaging with the vote. Um, and a report released by uh, by the Russian gov- accidentally released by the Russian government, showed that turnout was as low as thirty percent in that referendum in Crimea, and only fifty percent of of those uh, of those votes voted to join um, to join Russia. And the so like look, looking looking at that narrative well very much so oh, there was a lot of people in Crimea that did like view themselves as wanting to be aligned closer to Russia or they spoke Russian but just like a, a lot of Ukraine like uh southern eastern Ukraine speaking Russian or wanting closer ties with Russia does not mean you actually want to join Russia like if you look at Dnipro it's a Russian speaking city in Ukraine but one of the most patriotic cities in all of Ukraine a lot of like soldiers that I met on the front lines, they all come from that city. Um, and so given that, you know, if we want to respect international norms, international boundaries, like Elon Musk is like, well, why don't we bring the UN and, and hold another vote in Crimea, then recognize that vote It's like, why don't we recognize the 19, 1991 vote of Crimeans or all of people of Ukraine that voted to break from the Soviet Union and join a U- independent Ukrainian state? But the 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 complexity to Ukraine retaking Crimea is that uh, reports and, and research show that Russia has repopulated the like kicked out many of the Ukrainians, made it illegal for non-Russian citizens to hold like own land in Crimea. Uh, they targeted they've been arresting a lot of the local Crimean Tatar population because they know that they don't support Russia, um, and so they've brought in anywhere from Estimates range from 200,000 up to 1 million Russians into the peninsula, and so they have changed the demographics a lot and brought uh, a lot more Russians into the peninsula. So if Ukraine does see like conduct a siege and try to retake Crimea, it is a going to be a more hostile population than what would previously be there. But that doesn't change the fact that still a lot of Crimeans do want to be liberated. They do want to join Ukraine. And we see a lot of uh, partisan activity going on throughout the peninsula. Um, Ukraine continuously attacks the peninsula, destroying like Russian military targets. Um, they're conducting a lot of psychops, um, whether it's like the distribution of pro-Ukrainian materials, putting Ukrainian flags, banners. Um, a lot of the Russian elites have evacuated their families from Crimea. The Russians have been building trenches throughout all of Crimea preparing for a potential Ukrainian siege so while while the Russian narrative is that Crimea is a red line and nothing's going to happen in Crimea, their actions demonstrate something entirely different. The Russian occupiers they know that they're ruling or uh occupying foreign land, and there's a hostile population and so the inspections of people on the streets has dramatically increased because they're worried about partisan activity they're arresting, interrogating a lot more people, and they're and they're scared of what's going to happen in Crimea
0: there's so many things um wow first of all thank you for this this is so much needed perspective i think for a lot of us for me included um but i wanted to ask you a a little bit more about you know we propaganda and disinformation misinformation keep coming up and and this is something that we've talked about in the past on this show uh about how you know wars will be fought with with uh disinformation and and here we are um and I wonder you've written in the past about uh, efforts to counter let's say uh the disinformation warfare that that Ukraine is doing, and I wondered if you could speak a little bit about that
1: yeah i think I think one of the most interesting phenomenons uh, or aspects of like the 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 disinformation like battles that has emerged from the this full scale invasion of Ukraine. Um, has been, uh, uh, NAFO. So it's, uh, it's a group of, it's like a decentralized group of, of individuals literally from, from every part of the world that like band together and conduct meme, meme warfare against, uh, like Russian propagandists. And so, uh, at the, at the start of the war, you had, um, you had a, a Russian ambassador, I believe he was the, the Russian ambassador in, in Vienna. Um, so a Russian diplomat who is posting all these like absurd, uh, like Russian propaganda out there on Twitter. And, um, they, some folks went and, and they were like posting memes, um, uh, under uh, under his tweets and he finally replied to to one of them and he said, You pronounce this nonsense, not me. And so by engaging in in the mockery that like people are conducting of him, he became a, a legend in, in the community and like a, a call to arms for, for more people to to go and uh take like these memes, making fun of these people putting out Russian propaganda and like any time they post something, you continuously like post more memes and just make fun of them. And it angers them. And they eventually chased this Russian ambassador out of Twitter and he disabled his account for a while. Um,
2: so what's the name of the group that, that does this?
1: Uh, it's the, the North Atlantic fellows organization. NAFO. N-A-F-O? Yeah. NAFO. Um, and really I think the, the, the interesting thing about the organization, not around like the, the, the work that they do that they do is, is like very interesting and it's very fun and like a, a supportive community. Um, and it's literally anybody can create a, a side account to go troll th- these people um, and like taking funny memes, posting it. And it's like a very relaxed atmosphere is like somebody posts some absurd Russian propaganda and you, you go and you comment and, and you post memes, but it's actually been a very effective Mechanism to tackle Russian disinformation, like research from MIT, showed that f- fake news or disinformation is like disseminates is passed on at least six times the faster than like accurate news is, and so we even see in like Ukraine struggles to to work in Africa or talk to African leaders is that researchers found that over eighty percent of uh, activity uh in Africa on Twitter around Ukraine or like narratives around Ukraine was that eighty percent of African user activity showed that um users in Africa overwhelmingly were like posting or resharing materials that like Ukrainians are Nazis, they're bad people, and had a more pro-Russian narrative to them. So like Russian disinformation operations are really successful in places like Africa. Um, and so being and and the west has always struggled like how do we fight disinformation what do we do to stop it um and it's it's really hard because like the russians have troll farms troll factories or they'll have like entire uh d- departments of like russian intelligence or um that like conduct these operations and like it, it's really easy to disseminate fake information for it to spread quickly and so the west really up until this point never had a good measure or response to help combat that. And so NAFO trolling has had some level of success in fighting it. And you can't just go and, and take down NAFO that's decentralized. You just have people all over the world signing on every day and just trolling Russian, uh, uh, like uh, people that are spreading Russian propaganda. And if you try to, uh, like, reveal the identity of one of these people, and and you take them down. Well, that's not going to do anything because there's not one leader; just like over eighty thousand individuals that are all doing this, like un- more or less uncoordinated.
0: It's it's really kind of fa- mind blowing to me how impactful something. I mean, just the phrase "meme warfare," you know, internet troll warfare is is kind of mind blowing to a person. Like me, who remembers the world before the internet, but um, yeah, I mean, it, but it is very—it's quite impactful, and that—that's the the shocking thing here that I think, that, or that's the theme that that we've kind of carried when we've talked about it, you know, on on the show. But but it is quite—I mean, it's surprisingly imp- impactful, like you say, the the fake stuff is more likely to be shared and can have a very significant impact on our foreign policy here in the U S
1: yeah. And I mean, they, so this community also like they've actually partnered with United 24, the official Ukrainian government's uh, like charity organization. So they do a lot of fundraising. They they've fundraised hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to buy like uh, maritime drones uh, and uh, all sorts of like different supplies that, that the, like Ukrainian government fundraises for. And so this community attempts to not only conduct um, like, disinformation operations, but they, they do a lot of good and fundraising, bringing awareness to, to different uh, initiatives. Um, and I think it's going to be a, some sort of model for, for how we fight disinformation going forward. Um, and maybe this is a one-off, but it, it's definitely interesting how in, in one way, like we, we parts of like fighting disinformation or even like getting random people from around the world connected to like some sort of military, like military operations. Like you can imagine, like one thing that I wrote about was the potential um, maybe it's an absurd idea, but like different army units partnering with these groups, crowdfunding money for drones. And then like these communities tally, tallied their effectiveness on the battlefield. Um, and I think we're going to see more and more of that, like sort of engagement. Um, and I think, even on, on a on a separate note, I think transitioning a little bit to the coup that we saw this weekend, like the the role that, say, Twitter um, or like social media plays in in like following the wars and and what's going on is, I think if you if your breaking news is more than like ten minutes old, it's not breaking news anymore. Because if you are on Twitter following along what's going on in the coup, you are you are getting like minute by minute updates from different different experts or different open source people, or you're on, you're on yourself, you're on different telegram channels and you're getting like instant pictures or or videos like within a minute or two from what's actually going on throughout all of Russia. Um, and then you started having all these different spaces being opened on, on Twitter, um, where you have like all sorts of different experts or, um, Open open source people all talking about it, so it's really a, a big transformation in how I think like the world or people follow along when when something as as big like the, the attempted mutiny happened in in Russia.
2: So I'm wondering. Um, there's a couple of directions I want to take this. Um, one is what's at stake here? Uh, and, and, I, I raise that in part, because I think a lot of choices can be made ahead of time. Um, because I mean, I, I believe personally that, that the world kind of depends on what happens in Ukraine. I mean, yeah. if Ukraine, Ukraine loses, maybe China invades Taiwan because that worked for Russia, maybe it'll work for them. Um, it puts Moldova, which you've written about, uh, at risk. I'm sure people in Romania are not feeling comfortable um and yet the, the narratives tend to be very short term whatever the narratives are right you know, there's the the news as you put it is 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 it, it's it's what i call snow on the water it falls you see the snow and then it disappears it just falls into the the great past and i'm as so i'm there's sort of like two two angles to this one is um what, what could be done now? You mentioned one leverage point, um, which is, uh, NAFA and their, uh, anti-disinformation, um, meme war. Um, uh, another is just general support for Ukraine. Um, another is how long can Ukraine last given the, um, like just assume that there's a, we could, we in a larger sense that the West in general provides arms and other forms of help, but the Ukrainian army is the one that's fighting this and there's a limited population there. Uh, and then there's, you know, what, I don't know, I, there are several different directions you could take this, but I, I think we need a better sense. I think generally our listening population of what what's at stake and what needs to be committed to and why and how.
1: Right. So, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll try to break this down as best as I can. Um, um, you know, I, I think so much of, you know, I think humanity's future is at stake here in terms of like, there's going to be a lot of future wars that we fight if, if Ukraine doesn't prevail here. Um, if Russia gets away with using, like, nuclear terrorism or the threat of nuclear war against Ukraine, um, or, like, if they in the future are able to defeat Ukraine and, and take even what they occupy right now, like, what precedent does that set for other countries around the world, whether it's Iran, North Korea, or any other country, to be like, I have nuclear weapons, I can go and invade and threaten nuclear weapons and nobody's going to stop me. Um, but just the fact that, like, what what world do we live in if we allow, like, no respect for, um, just our own humanity for to allow this butchery to occur, um, and like the, no order, no order in the world, and if this bi-multipolar system that Russia wants to establish or, or spheres of influence. Um, it's like, shouldn't you think about why do all these countries want to move away from you or not want to be in your sphere of influence? look at what you've historically done to all these people and why do they all want to join NATO or the EU? Isn't that the problem? Um, And in Ukraine, we already saw the the attempts of making a peace deal with Russia. What happened in 2014 when Russia invaded eastern Ukraine and Crimea, they were told, like with Crimea, back down, don't do anything. And so the Ukrainian government didn't do anything and, and had very little support. And for eight years, uh, Russia waged war in, in, Don, in Donbass and Ukraine just let it go. And they were told like, hey, whatever agreements, Minsk, Minsk agreements, um, whatever puts out, like Ukraine needs to sign it. And was Russia satisfied? Of course they wouldn't. Russia has always wanted to conquer and enslave Ukraine. Um, in 2008, George Bush was told by Putin that Ukraine's not a real country. Um, recently Bill Clinton said in 2011 that um, Putin told him that he had no intention of respecting the Budapest Memorandum or Ukraine's sovereignty. So the Budapest Memorandum in 1994 is when Ukraine gave up its nuclear arsenal in, in exchange for the US, the UK, um, and Russia to protect like Ukraine's sovereignty and Ukraine's borders. And of course, n- nobody didn't. And so Ukraine attempted to give... Uh, like, you know, sign the peace deals, they tried to freeze the conflict, and it did. What did it lead to? It led to a much bigger war and Russia attempting to go after all of it. And Putin has made his aims very clear, whether it's in his speech or his rhetoric. He doesn't view Ukraine as a, as a real country. He doesn't see Ukrainians as a separate people. He sees it as a part of Russia. And I think the interesting thing, even going back to the coup, is that What happened in 2004 in Ukraine nearly came full swing to take Putin down. So in 2004, there was an election between a pro-Russian candidate and a pro-Ukrainian candidate, Uh, so Viktor Yushchenko, he was actually poisoned by the Russians.
2: I remember that. Yeah, it was horrible.
1: Yeah. And then you had Viktor Yanukovych. So Yanukovych initially won the first elections. There was claims of fraud and and so they demanded a re-election and they did a recount and it turned out that Ukraine won. But even before the election results were certified the first time, Putin actually flew to Kiev and showed support for Yanukovych and he was so confident in his ability to control whatever happened in Ukraine and essentially lecturing the Ukrainians on what decision that they need to make. And when Ukrainians actually rose up in the Orange Revolution – And they had a recount, and the pro-Western candidate won. And they saw, like, the Ukrainian people have developed a voice and made their decision that, like, no, we don't want to be aligned with Russia. We see a better future with Europe. We want to be a part of Europe. And then it it really has really nothing to do with, with this whole NATO argument. Like, why can't people want a better life? Why can't people want a better economic situation by moving closer to Europe? It's not that there's some sort of ideology that we want to become part of like some western project or join nato it's like people in ukraine believe that like we are your ukrainians are europeans and by integrating closer to europe we'll have better economic opportunities our quality of life will improve like what have we had under centuries of occupation and, and being aligned with with russia like look how impoverished and poor poor the country is and so Going closer to Europe is just where Ukrainians see themselves, and where, where like, where, who they are as a people historically. And so, when Putin saw what happened in two thousand four in the revolution, you saw that Russian foreign policy drastically changed after that revolution and the people, um, and how the people rose up. That though his initial few years in office, he was very an enlightened president. He was always engaging with the West and very friendly with Western states. Um, And Russian foreign policy became very, very aggressive after 2004. Putin became scared that the Russian people could rise up and overthrow him Um, and that he wanted Russian foreign policy to now start dragging a lot of these countries back into a sphere of influence. So in 2008, you had Russia the first time going and invade Georgia um, and occupy 20% of Georgia's territory and like nobody batted an eye and everybody just let it go um so putin's he felt really encouraged but also in the in the the second chechen war when he went and he flattened grozny to the ground uh, and destroyed much chechnya like the whole world didn't say anything and everyone's like that's an internal affair so when he went and did it in georgia in 2008 and nobody did anything he's like wow he's like, "Nobody's." Like really cares what I what I get to do in, in this part. So
2: of quickly was Chechnya an independent country? I, I know Georgia for sure was, but I don't know about Chechnya. Yeah,
1: so yeah, Chechnya was. It, it's it's a it's a region. It's a oblast in the in the like Caucasus region of Russia. So they they were conquered uh, by the Russians um, and like forced forced into into the Russian Empire. Um, and so they're actually, uh, like they have their own language. It's majority Muslim, um, region of Russia. And so when, when Russia became independent in, in, in the nineties, they, they fought like two wars. Um, the first Chechen war where the, the war was settled on terms more friendly to che- Chechnya. Um, and then, Uh, than the second Chechen war. And the, the, the crazy thing about the second Chechen war is that it was started on the pretense of a bombing in Moscow that killed a few hundred people. And it was actually revealed that there was two FSB agents caught planting that, like running away after that bombing from the building that it was placed. And so the like leading theory is that Putin, Putin, uh, Putin placed that bomb Blew up a couple hundred people in Moscow, blamed it on the Chechens, and the Chechens denied doing it. And then he used it to invade and crush like the Chechen resistance against Russia, and he forcefully made sure that the like Chechnya was reintegrated into Russia after essentially flattening and just killing so much of the population. Um, and then also in in 2013, when when the the chemical weapons in Syria. Um, when obama used that red line that you know russia syria using chemical weapons is the red line and russia crossed that line with syria and we did nothing and so putin felt really empowered and you know i think the way that we looked at putin is that he's some short, some sort of really smart leader and and there was this narrative that like putin is this really wise person who who who, do, who does good by russia but putin was a crony in the 90s who Uh, he made a name for himself by being loyal to the mafia in St. Petersburg. And his loyalty really helped him move up the ladder by being loyal to really corrupt people and like the St. Petersburg clan. Um, And so when it was time to select him to like become president, a lot of the oligarchs that were running Russia, they viewed him as a a very loyal figure that will respect the like corrupt system in Russia, of, of which he did. And he eventually like took back power from a lot of these oligarchs and put people loyal to him. And he built all these essentially mafia systems across Russia to like make sure that he secured his power. Um, And so Putin got away for many years with these like gray space operations, whether it was waging this like low intensity war in Syria, then like invading Crimea, uh, waging this like militant, conflict in in eastern ukraine and so using these like more low and intensity wars he was able to get away with a lot of it a lot of people like wow he's he's a smart strategist who really knows what he's doing and and we we must be we, we must be scared of russia And i think putin thought like wow i'm going i've been unchecked for so many years that nobody's going to stop me and when when you read the accounts of Western diplomats talking with, say, Russian's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, or a lot of Russia's top diplomats, they genuinely believe in this ideology that, like, R- Ukraine is ruled by Nazis, even though Zelensky is a Jew himself. Um, mm-hmm. and, you, and Pew Research has showed Ukraine to be one of the friendliest states to Jews in all of Europe. Like, they genuinely believe this ideology that, like, Ukrainians are Nazis and they're not a real people. They're actually Russians. They're just confused. Um, and so Putin genuinely believed in this like ideology, and he actually talked about himself last year, comparing himself to Peter the Great, that he's retaking parts of the Russian Empire and restoring Russia's old glory. Um, and so he bit off definitely a lot more than he can chew, and the the Russian facade of like Russia being Russia being a grand empire um, changed.
0: I feel like we're running out of time here. However, <laughs> if we have time, sorry, Doc has something, but I also, I, you know, I would love to talk about Ukraine as a tech center if we have time for that. But, Doc, you go ahead.
2: Well, I, I, what I'd like to get to is, uh, is what, are the, what are the stakes? Okay, so there are different ways this can go. I mean, what if Russia wins? What if, um, what if Ukraine wins? What if um, the next coup in Russia does succeed? um the the cool leader says no nice guy i mean so wherever that was going with that i mean that's i forget the guy's name but um Precursion. yeah but he was bragging that he could have taken ukraine in days himself if he if he had been in charge with his with his wagner group um there're lots of there're there are narratives now but actual possibilities based on on prevailing things, like, what happens if Putin succeeds in 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 killing Zelensky, which is something he's wanted to do, I'm sure from the start. Um, you know, will it, so those are all sort of questions that I have about where this can go, and uh, and what happens.
1: You know, yeah, so, yeah. I mean, and 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 finishing that thought, that like Putin bit off more more than he can chew, and, you know, he invaded Ukraine. And um, I I think that also reflects the the misunderstanding that, like, the West has always had of Ukraine and of Russia. And, like, um, and even of the point that, like, why do we understand? Why do our national security advisors, why do so many people in the West not have this understanding? And I recently read an, an interesting article the other day of, like, there's almost very, very few Uh, like Slavic studies or Eastern European studies departments in the U S and even within those pretty much all of them are Russian studies slanted on, like bent on, Mm -hmm. you know, Russian figures, Russian poetry, Russian history. And almost none of them are actually are like specific Ukrainian departments. And so whether it was Condoleezza Rice, uh, like George Bush's national security advisor, a lot of important figures that govern, like oversee policy relating to Ukraine and Eastern Europe, Well, we actually did not have any, many good insights um, into Ukraine. So we underestimated Ukraine or understood the Ukrainian populace. And we I think we were far more indexed on like the Russian point of view or the Russian understanding of things. And, you know, we went from Russia going to take Kiev in under three days to, uh, this militancy taking Moscow in within three days, um, And, you know, the Ukrainian defense minister recently said that um, uh, he was told by by senior European leaders and diplomats that um, you need to start digging trenches and take out as many Russians as you can before, like your your country doesn't exist anymore. And Ukraine's ambassador in Germany was left out of the room when he asked for aid. He was told, you won't have a country in 72 hours. Boris Johnson, UK's prime minister, said the, the Germans hope for a quick defeat of Ukraine within like two weeks and for everything to go back to business. The French, Macron, he, the French president, Macron, he was in disbelief that the war was actually happening. And the first few months he called Russia, like Putin over a hundred times, trying to talk and negotiate um, and so, the world really underestimated the fight that Ukraine could put up, and then all the battles that Ukraine has won thus far. And so, if Ukraine is able to uh, to win in uh, in this battle, I do think that China is, is watching closely, and they're hoping for Ukraine um, Ukraine the the Russo-Ukrainian war to drag out for as long as possible. It like takes a lot of U.S. attention away. Um, from from like the potential Taiwan invasion, um, and uh, the fact that like the West is using a lot of its resources, and and and, and Europe is as well. Um, and if if Russia gets away with at a, at any of it, like continuing to occupy Crimea, Donbass, like it's going to show that like what Russia did is like conducting this this type of war like that you can still get away with it and you know the russia destroyed that order that kept the world in balance and safe since world war ii with its 2014 invasion of ukraine and if we're able to help ukraine win this war and restore that 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 order that kept us safe for for so many decades um i think it's going to be one of the best deterrents that we can have against china and what they're doing like what they want to do if the west can show that we're united we can band together we'll do whatever it takes to to win um that's that's the best deterrent that we can i think put up against china at this point um and if 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 ukraine is able to win i think like not only will we see um uh, like a much stronger europe emerge but like we'll see moldova um like uh, the security risk from Moldova dissipate, Moldova will become reunited, Georgia will potentially take its territories back. And um, also, you know, if if I if I was a Russian policymaker, I'd try to settle this war as soon as possible because, um, you know, trying to drag Europe back into the 1960s and restoring those borders, Russia needs to focus. Russia's real enemy in the future is going to be China. Um, Ch- China, w- what it's doing with Taiwan is it it, it wants to, Restore its like historical lands, or go, uh, like give justice to the century of humiliation, where a lot of colonizers took back a, uh, took a lot of its territory and land. And Russia was much the same. Russia is not a historical ally, even in Soviet times when they were both communist countries. There were constant border clashes between the Sino and Soviet forces, and they were not good allies, and they very much did not like each other, and really they still don't. China. Wants to take as much of Russia's resources as they can. As Russia's population continues to r- rapidly drop off, China will take a lot more of Russia's resources throughout Siberia. A lot of the lands, like um, in in Russia's far east, once belong to China. And China, interestingly enough, stopped spelling some of those cities by their Russian names and started spelling them by their Chinese names. Like once Russia becomes weaker and weaker in the future, China will probably st- take action and help speed up Russia's, uh, the, uh, the the breakup of, of Russia and they're not allies to Russia. And so the Russians by focusing all their might on Europe can potentially just make sure that Russia loses everything else that it has.
2: Wow. There's a, there's a whole bunch of other things I'd like to visit. Do you want to save the tech stuff? For yeah, another maybe show or yeah, go maybe, into it maybe now? Yeah, maybe
0: we need to have, well, I don't know. <laughs> Could, well, maybe just, I don't think it's a long conversation, but um, right. I just yeah. wanted to mention that, you know, at the beginning of all of this, again, coming from the open source tech world, my first exposure, again, not having a strong connection to the region was, um, you know, seeing software engineers in various communities suddenly, Drop what they're doing in in terms of work and put on some camouflage and pick up weapons you know and way I saw you um, I remember very clearly a photo uh, I think it was in Drupal developers because at the time that's what I was doing and posting a photo of themselves and these are people whose lives looked just like mine you know the day before, and now they right. were going to war um and it's kind of a terrifying reality, but I just kind of wanted to tie it in that there is a huge tech community in Ukraine. And so, and, and I know this is something you've written about too, that is, you know, what the future looks like if Ukraine wins, which we hope for um, in terms of a tech, being a tech hub, you know, what, what sort of, what role does technology have in rebuilding the Russian economy, rebuilding the Ukrainian economy, um, re- rebuilding in general, um and and what that means to people outside ukraine and what what does it mean right now also i mean a lot of things have been interrupted obviously and you know and that's the, the the least of the the concern at this point but but it is um there will be a process of rebuilding that that uh tech community there and and how where how do you see all that playing out yes yeah, so, i mean ukraine
1: um ukraine ukraine's government prior to the war they they wanted to set a target of like the tech sector being up to ten percent of their economy by twenty thirty, before the war it was about three three four um, percent, and so Ukraine Ukraine's economy in twenty twenty two contracted by by over thirty percent, but Ukraine's actually tech sector, like March of twenty twenty three, actually grew uh, grew substantially. So Ukraine's tech sector is booming, um, and it is one of the like few bright spots in in like all. Uh, hmm. Ukraine Ukraine's uh, economy and so Ukraine Ukraine actually has like one of Europe's like uh, most educated population in terms of high school uh technical high school graduates it has the mo- uh, most among Europe produces a lot, uh, really a high amount of tech graduates um uh, in like Ukraine consistently in uh whether it's like developer quality index or um all sorts of different measurements. Ukraine is always, at least, in like the top five, top ten in, in the world for um, for those rankings. And so, a lot of the work that's outsourced by Western companies—over twenty percent of Fortune five hundred companies do some sort of like uh, outsourcing work to Ukraine. Um, and so, Ukraine, Ukrainian talent doesn't just specialize in maybe a lot more of your just general low low effort work, but Ukraine Ukraine Ukraine's workforce is. Highly specialized in areas like uh, uh, cloud automation, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, DevOps. So mm-hmm. Ukraines like uh, tech workers are very specialized and they're really good at what they do. Um, so Ukraines te- tech sector, no matter the war, uh, like the full-scale invasion, they were actually prepared because when Russia first invaded in twenty fourteen, a lot of companies, a lot of Ukrainian companies and people had contingency plans. Uh, Ukraine was resilient, knew how to adapt to these different sort of circumstances because they already went through it. So a lot of people, whether like tech workers moved to us in Ukraine, they were working under bomb shelters. Ukraine government has been very good about making sure that whether it's like the Russians target the infrastructure, they get it back up. And Ukraine also has some of the world's fastest and cheapest broadband internet in all of the world. Um, And yeah, Ukraine's tech sector is also playing a major role in the war, whether it's like tech innovation, working with drones. And it's estimated that up to like 15% of Ukraine's like tech workers are playing some sort of, uh, role in the informational front. And I think one of my predictions or hope for Ukraine is that, um, once, once this war ends, I think the tech sector will play a really big role in Ukraine's recovery and, um, I I think build some sort of model that Israel has Um, like Israel's known as the world startup nation. It's one of the, Mm -hmm. one of, yes, it's one of the world's biggest research and like development centers. And, uh, um, and a lot of that does come from Israel's army. So whether it's like the unit um, uh, 8200 where they pick some of the best talent and and then those people go on and and create uh, new startups, like Ukraine is at the forefront, not only of like, the the largest like physical war that's going on right now, but it's the first like really major uh cyber cyber war that's going on, um like full-fledged cyber war that's going on. And so Ukraine Ukraine is at the forefront getting so much experience and Ukraine is going to be able mm-hmm. to, I think, become a leader in that space. And a lot of Ukraine's veterans when this war will end, will be able to come back into the economy, into the tech sector, create more startups. And with in close collaboration with Ukraine's government, I think they'll be able to to build like a much uh more robust and strong ecosystem where you know a lot of the military and veterans will play a really big role and I think Ukraine will become an exporter of, of a lot of this technology that you know they've been working on, they've been developing. Um and so Ukraine's veterans and the, the military will play a role not only in the rebuilding of the country and the politics going forward, but I think in Making Ukraine uh, a leader in, in certain sectors of, of technology and, and an exporter of it.
0: Yeah, and I, I also, you know, I suppose it also makes makes the stakes higher for Russia, right? And is maybe a motivating factor for Russia to not lose. But um, I mean, I suppose we certainly hope that doesn't happen. And I, you know, I feel a little bit. I mean, it feels odd having this conversation, you know, while there is a war going on, while people are being killed, and, and you know, and who cares about? But um, but you know the, these economic realities and 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 are are important. And I suppose you know, I'm really I'm a little surprised to, to hear you say that it actually grew in 2023, the the tech sector in, in Ukraine. And so I, I, you know, if it provides a, a a little bit of hope and optimism, I think that's not a bad thing.
2: I'm uh, wondering you have about any final thoughts? yeah. yeah uh, this might be a final thing. It's not necessarily thematically consistent with everything we just mentioned, but it might be with the tech stuff. Um, And that's corruption. I mean, it's another one of um, an ironic thing about, you know, Putin's case against uh, Ukraine is that it had been, had a high level of corruption. Not that it's absent in Russia. It's quite the opposite, I'm sure. Um, But you've written a bit about this, that, um, that you actually have hope that the reputation that Ukraine had for Corruption and government and and uh, can be that that a real rule of law can can prevail. Thanks in part to the war and everybody
1: getting together.
2: That may not be a good enough uh, summary. Yeah, I mean,
1: like you. I mean, you know, corruption is a is a is a tool that Russia uses to wield influence in in other countries and make sure that like it erodes its 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 functionality and make sure that like these, these states remain corrupt and poor in in Russia's sphere of influence. So um, a lot of like Ukraine's most uh, corrupt people, whether it was like the previous party, like a lot of these parties and some of the most corrupt figures in in all of Ukraine were pro-Russia figures that were like openly financed by Russia. Um, And so Russia uses corruption to, to like hold these countries back and make sure that like they don't develop into say like EU candidate members. That's not to say that like other say non pro Russian people are not corrupt. That's still very much the case. Um, but you know, my hope is that like Ukraine, Ukraine is paying the highest price that you can pay in terms of the the people that Ukraine is losing in this war and you know Russia's Russia like like with the mercenary group Wagner they're they're clearing out their prisons and sending their the worst that Russia has to offer to go fight and die in this war but for Ukraine it's sending its very best people to go fight from you know what from like athletes olympians um like tech workers people from the opera uh teachers professors i mean the, you know, a lot of my family is out there fighting in, in the army, um, and Ukraine is losing its its best people in this war. Like Ukraine is paying its 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 highest price, and so the tolerance for corruption is very low. And I think going forward, it's it, it's you know if it's caught, like the punishment, you know, it's no longer going to be tolerated or brushed aside like it was in the past. Like people want change, they will demand it. And they are taking action and even even before the the full scale invasion, the government was using technology to to try to advance like reforms uh, with corruption and even during the the full scale invasion, the government has been using um, using technology to try to tackle corruption so before the war like the Ukrainian government implemented a, a digital online initiative that like required politicians and government officials to declare all the assets and it was um, it was publicly visible everybody can go can go and see it and even for like uh, army procurement contracts like the the push to have everything all the details disclosed publicly so everyone can have access see what's going on so the government has been trying to take a lot of measures in like the digital space to try to make things more transparent um, to tackle corruption Um, but it's it, it remains a problem. Ukraine in wartime has made tremendous progress and um, the amount of reforms, but there's still things that are lingering like with the judicial courts, right? Like why do a lot of investors or Western companies hesitate to come into Ukraine where there's weak intellectual property protections in Ukraine and a lot of the courts still can be bought off and you can't necessarily in, in, enforce IP protections. So reforming the courts um is like one of the priorities in ukraine right now to tackling corruption but a lot of the judges whether it's on the constitutional courts or low level courts whether they were previously put into place um it's it's really hard to to try to like fight a lot of the systemic corruption and to do it fast like using democratic methods means it will take longer to get there uh but ukraine has made a, a lot of progress with and even when Putin talks about corruption in Ukraine, the interesting thing is that, in his declar- in his like speech, um, in his war speech, he cites Ukraine's establishment of an anti-like uh, corruption organization as one of the reasons of why he like needs to go and conduct a special military operation. He did not like that Ukraine was building these these organizations, these institutions to fight corruption um and even recently they actually arrested a judge on the constitutional court for accepting like a 2.7 million dollar bribe um so ukraine is making a lot of progress on the um on this front and even for a lot of the aid that the u.s has sent military aid the u.s treasury and and like the ukrainian government audits are conducted and they didn't find that like any of the money was misspent but um like corruption remains a problem and it's as Rex Tillerson said in the past, like Ukraine is fighting for its body and Donbass, but losing its soul to corruption. Like it's a, it's a two front war that Ukraine is fighting. They need to continue like unrelentlessly fighting this war against corruption, making sure that they remove it because that is one of the biggest barriers to prosperity and ensuring that Ukraine becomes a full fledged functioning democracy within the European union um, and improves the the lives of all of these people because like that's what ukrainians want like they just want uh better living conditions a better life um it's not necessarily about any sort of ideology or this wider rhetoric or propaganda it just comes down to like people just want a better life they want freedom they want human rights they want democracy and that's i think what a lot of it just comes down to for ukraine I
2: have I a quick one have you? Um, you mentioned earlier that there's very little study of of uh, Eastern Europe uh, that isn't about Russia. Um, uh, have you seen? And, and as far as I know, there's only one university lecture series that is about Ukraine, and it's by Timothy Snyder mm-hmm. at Yale. Are you familiar? Yeah, yeah, with that? And,
1: yeah. I mean, he's he's done. Tremendous work, um, like raised millions of dollars uh, for, for like Ukrainian charities. And um, he's, he's written a lot of really good books, like Bloodlands, um, around like the atrocities committed by Russia a- against Ukraine. Um, so he's, he's a phenomenal, um, and one of the best and one of the only ones, I think, in this space.
2: Well, I I, I don't know if we're doing show notes or not, but if, if we do, I would recommend putting his uh podcast yeah. which is actually his lectures his lectures to, um yeah. at yale are free and they're available i've listened yeah, to we'll like, 23 of them uh and it's a series it ran last fall the last uh, last semester and um uh and i'm listening to it again i'm just going through the whole thing again a second time because there's so much information in it and and it goes back really all the way you know to the, the, the full the full history of the region, and um and uh, so much of what he says is like wow I had no idea you know great, great
1: yeah show. I mean like the 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 history and the and the nuance behind the war and everything that's going on it is um like so nuanced and and a lot of the narratives that are like put out by like both the Russian and and even the the Western media. It lacks so much context, narrative, historical detail, and understanding of of Ukraine, and that's what I always like it's like the cycle of frustration. And I think like maybe my closing point around this is in in the 1930s when the Soviet Union was um, like going this 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 uh, industrializations since Stalin and enforced these grain quotas that would starve the like the populace into just. Uh, starving them to death um, and he knew that he was putting like quotas that would um, just kill so many people and he ended up starving millions uh, like anywhere from three to seven million Ukrainians to death That he knew that he needed to crush the Ukrainian population and destroy their identity and, and um, bring them into uh, like destroy the Ukrainian identity and rebuild them a Soviet identity um, and where does the, the Western media or the narrative play into all this is that in the, uh, Walter Durante, a New York times, journalist who was stationed in Moscow. Um, he was in, uh, like close partnership with Stalin and, and had close access. And, um, when, uh, he was pushing out a lot of, uh, like uh, the, the, the Russian government's narrative, the Soviet government's narrative and, suppressing a lot of the reports coming out of Ukraine around the the genocide, the 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 in Ukrainian means death by hunger. Um and he actually won a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting. And to this day they still haven't revoked his um his Pulitzer Prize. And Gary Jones, they actually made a movie about this, would highly recommend to watch it, um, called Mr. Jones. I, I believe it was uh, released in 2019 or 2020 and he went into Ukraine and he saw what was going on and he was trying to get the world informed about what was going on. And uh, Walter Durante out of Moscow, he was calling him a liar and saying what he was reporting was not real. Um, and so uh, much of the world never found out about the Rush Re- Russia's attempted genocide against Ukraine in the 1930s until essentially the breakup of the Soviet union. And a lot of Ukrainian, like you weren't, people were not allowed to talk about the genocide and like it Nearly destroyed Ukraine's identity, and maybe the identity would have never been rejuvenated if it wasn't for Western Ukraine, which is a part of Poland after World War One, was reintegrated into the rest of Ukraine after after World War Two. Um, well, in the when the Soviet Union went and, and with uh, Nazi Germany and took parts of Poland in nineteen thirty nine, then Western Ukraine was reintegrated into the rest of Ukraine, into the rest of Ukraine, and that part of Western Ukraine still had a strong. Ukrainian identity nationalism and they played a big role in helping Ukraine restore its, its overall um, identity. And, um, and the, you know, the Western media, like till this day, like continues to play a role in like um, suppressing Ukraine's perspective and narrative in the historical context. Uh, And we need to do a better job of promoting it because then it will, will realize that Russia's war is far more than, like the discussion about NATO, or um, or a lot of these like general themes that we put out, it's like Russia has always tried to occupy and to destroy Ukraine, the Ukrainian people, and to subjugate them. And this is this is like something that um, you know, if Ukraine doesn't win, like Russia do, will continue to uh, to roll its tanks further into Europe. So this is a battle not just for the very survival of the Ukrainian people like we have the ukrainian people have bled and and died for hundreds of years for this opportunity um like this 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 shot at freedom and all that ukraine asked for is like give us the weapons like we are we are bleeding out there and you see, like when i was on the front lines working with the soldiers what every single one of them would tell you is like please do more send us more weapons like we have so little compared to what the Russians have and we need more help and we are fighting. We are willing. We just need more weapons. And so for hundreds of years, like it's led us up until this point. And I don't think it's right for the world to allow this, this evil to persist in this world, like give Ukraine the weapons that it needs, let it win this war because it it, not only is it going to stop Russia from continuing this, this war into other parts of the world, but You're going to stop, like I think, so many of the future wars that countries will fight, but not allowing this terror to continue and to persist. This is like something that Russia has always tried to do, and like it must be stopped.
2: That's a great wrap, I think.
0: Um, Well, thank you so much. Um, Thank you also to everybody who is listening, who has um, made it all the way to the end. Uh, But thank you, David, so much for this, because you know I think we have actually in the past here. Um, you know, thrown out some thoughts and, 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 and our own perspectives, but they're comparatively useless to yours because, you know, you, you, you obviously, you know, you've seen it firsthand, you've lived it. And um, yeah, and we really appreciate it. We appreciate you bringing, bringing all of this and I hope it's been useful for everybody else as well. Um, But yeah, the stakes are tremendously high and, and we can only hope that we collectively globally get it right yeah
1: well uh, thank you thank you for having me on i think like so many of the areas that we discussed it felt like couldn't couldn't do it you know justice to to break it down in and in the, the like level of detail and and like the structuring of the of the historical context as much as i wanted to but i hope it was i hope it was useful and i really appreciate being able to come on and share a little bit more